Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you have not yet given us a five-star review, pause your recording and give us a five-star rating and review us kindly. My name is Kirk Haberman, and I'm a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, an Anglican priest. But today, we have a very special guest, and I'm very excited to talk to him. We would like to welcome Father Steve Macias. Steve Macias is an Anglican priest in the Reformed Episcopal Church in the ACNA, Anglican Church of North America. He is the headmaster of Canterbury School and rector of St. Paul's Anglican Church in Los Altos, California. He is married and a father of five, which means, Father Steve, you have bested me by one child. I have four children, and in these days of declining fertility, I rarely run into a man who has more than me. So I tip my hat. Well done, sir. Father Steve, how are you? I am doing well. It's great to be with you. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller. And, uh, you know, thanks for the introduction uh, on the school. And, uh, you know, it's great to be like with like-minded Anglican folks and kind of show how our worlds are all connected. This small Anglican sphere has uh, lots of interconnected uh, threads. And so I'm, I'm glad to be part of this network. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to have you. So are you a native Californian or what's your story? I'm a native Californian, and uh, you know, after high school, I had a chance to get out. I did some pro-life ministry with some uh, nonprofit folks in D.C., and came back to California and have committed myself to ministry uh, in the West Coast until the Second Coming. So we're <laughs> we're going to redeem it, and when all it falls, we're going to be here repairing the ruins, uh, and that's really why we're in education and why we're in the church. There you go, uh, Christopher and I sometimes joke that like. Uh, in our opening comments, as we were saying hi and how was your week and blah blah blah, um, it devolves briefly into a weather podcast. But I'm guessing, like, since you're in California, like, there's no like it's 72 and lovely, and it is every day. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, and right now we're about 30 minutes away from the beach, and I have the pleasure here in the Reformed Episcopal Church we have a, a you know network of churches, and we're planting one on the beach. So this Sunday I'll be taking uh, the the labored and difficult task of leaving my parish and going to a community beach parish where I will have the difficult task of offering the liturgy and then spending the afternoon in the sun on the beach <laughs> before we start the school year. So yeah, boy, uh, California you, ministry. <laughs> you sure have taken up your cross by dedicating yourself <laughs> to ministry in California, you know, minutes from the beach, 
minutes from, you know, Big Sur, minutes from Napa. Uh, yeah, that's life. Life sounds hard. Yeah, well, we figure once we finish, you know, conquering California for Christ, we'll move to Hawaii and we'll do that same thing there. Yes. <laughs> There you go. Christopher, I'm, I'm put in mind of um, pictures that you've sent me of uh, oftentimes you, you do your Easter morning services um, outdoors. And yeah. uh, you've sometimes done that in a hat and gloves in South Dakota. <laughs> Indeed. So I'm, I'm guessing that's rarely a problem for you, Father. Oh, uh, yeah, rarely, rarely. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so um, can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your Anglican journey? Are you a cradle Episcopalian or is it, um, are there more twists yeah. and turns than that? Yeah, mine uh, is a, a pretty interesting story, not from an Anglican family, not from a Christian family, didn't become a Christian until uh, sophomore year of high school, uh, when through the magic and majesty of Toby Mac and Acquire the Fire Teen Mania <laughs> Ministries, mm -hmm. that I was tricked into an altar call in a <laughs> sports arena uh, and became a Christian. And I spent a couple of years uh, in the evangelical church, running a Bible club on our campus, being uh, indoctrinated into the kind of fundamentalism and uh, reformed theology uh, until I was challenged as I pursued pastoral ministry to study this first thousand years of the church and I found myself uh, turning to the Anglican church as the only way to, to solve the conundrum of how do you hold in tension the biblical text along with the history of the church and put myself squarely under a bishop and uh, decided to pursue ministry in the Anglican church and have been serving ACNA churches uh, since my confirmation in 2012. So almost 10 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, so lo let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, a, a common revivalistic complaint about our liturgy is that there is no altar call. Now, I know what my response to that is. I'm curious what yours is. Why don't you have an altar call? in your liturgy, not your liturgy, but the church's liturgy. Why don't you have an yeah. altar call? Yeah, well, my simple answer is we have more than one. Why do you only have one? <laughs> we have an altar call at confession, at the gospel reading, uh, you know, at the come and receive the body and blood, come and give thanksgiving, come and say the Gloria, come and say <laughs> all of these altar calls. Uh, but my personal the, the conversion. Creed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but my personal conversion was at uh, one of these altar calls. You know, mm -hmm. I had Mm -hmm. uh, Ron Luce, who was, you know, this well-known student ministry, youth pastor kind of guy who gives the prodigal son story. And I'm standing in center field at AT&T Park, where the San Francisco Giants usually play, and <clears throat> get down on my knees and I pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, but the altar call didn't really transform me. What transformed me is uh, the miracle that happened right after my altar call. And that is I turned around amongst you know, tens of thousands of people walking back to my seat and I'm interrupted by my little league baseball coach uh, who happened to be at this one event hmm. and noticed me and knows my family story of you know, parents who are in and out of jail and uh, living in poverty and drug addiction and says, what is this young man doing at this hmm. conference? And so calls wow. out to me across these you know, thousands of people and says, hey, Steve, what are you doing here? And I said, I think... I think I just accepted Jesus. And mm. he said, well, then you're going to come to church with me every Sunday. And so praise God. Yeah. So for the next three years, the altar call was the beginning. But what really made me a Christian was 
Tuesday evenings after school's over, I went to Bible study. After Thursday evenings, I went to youth group and uh, we called it encounter where we did the chubby bunnies, where we did the, <laughs> right. the, the yeah. lock-ins, we did the youth pastor games. And then we were required, you know, on Sunday morning, you show up for, you know, service. Now it wasn't Anglican, but it was formative to have that routine, that habit, um, especially as somebody who was, you know, 16 years old to be told there's a regular pattern and flow to how you should live your life. And so Anglicanism uh, really fit with what trained me or discipled me into the church to kind of go up to full gear and do a daily yeah. office was the next step. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So how did you first encounter that then? Well, the first encounter was when I left California and went back to DC. Uh, the Church of Rwanda started a network of churches in the DC Arlington area through EMEA, so Anglican Mission in America. And there was a group of kind of reformed Anglican evangelical folks uh, who had started churches there. And so I was working uh, with the, the, the political folks in DC, but going to churches on Sunday that matched kind of a reformed evangelical flavor. Back home, I was part of the Presbyterian church uh, and eventually the, the CREC, which some of you guys might know, like Doug Wilson and uh, Peter Lightheart, those guys. Uh, but they had common overlap with these Anglican churches in, in the DC area. And so I stumbled into one for a Christmas Eve service, recognized that uh, the liturgy that I had been taught as a Presbyterian was uh, really great, but half-baked <laughs> and uh, started di digging deeper into the history there. So I forget the name, but but I, I've read of um, during the uh, during Cromwell's reign um, in the 1650s, there was an eminent public man who died, and so a very very public funeral. Um, the minister had actually the prayer book liturgy memorized, but pre pretended to do it extemporaneously to satisfy Presbyterian rules for public service, and was complimented. Uh, what, what, what marvelous prayers, what marvelous prayers, sir. Thank you. And he's like, it was just the prayer book. Yeah. So yeah, there's that the, uh, the, the Presbyterian, um, not, not, not poverty, but like if it could, that it goes way back that, that relationship yeah. goes way back. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, if you go back in Presbyterian history, you know, I was from a church that was associated with this terrible PCA heresy called the federal vision. Uh, and, <laughs> and so they started talking about things like baptismal regeneration and objective covenant realities and the power of the sacraments and the idea of, of reprobation. And as I started reading in the Anglican circles, you know, N.T. Wright and these guys, I started noticing these are not new debates, right? The, the debate the PCA is having this last 20 years, uh, happened in Mercersburg with the kind of the Catholic revival in the reformed tradition. And that the, the Calvinistic tradition that we recognize today in the OPC or the PCA is a very narrowed version of the reformed heritage that existed on the continent uh, or even in Geneva. Uh, I'm always surprised that people can read the Institutes of Christian Religion and think that that Calvin is the same Calvin <laughs> that is supposed to be the inspiration for modern uh, Presbyterian churches. You know, somebody who believed in sacramental efficacy or somebody who believed in uh, the, the multiple offices of the church or the reality of, of real presence in the Eucharist, things like that. 
this just occurred to me, and this is perhaps a deeper question for another time. Do you think that that is leftover baggage from the Civil War? So like the reform side got just more radicalized, right? And so mm-hmm. you have to be Puritan if you're reformed. Um, and then the established church got kind of inoculated against reform theology for at least a hundred years or so, right? And, and saw it as, frankly, like dangerous to like the whole establishment, right? Like the crown, the bishops, all of it. And, and, and so it was, became allergic to it. And so unfortunately there was like um, a, a polarization that happened um, and instead of seeing that, uh, I feel like we're only now seeing that the, the Elizabethan church and even the Laudian church um, didn't see a, a conflict between being both reformed and continuous with the ancient Catholic faith. Right. Well, I, and I don't know if the Civil War would be where I would mark it, but there's two really important specters. Uh, in American church history that I would note, and that the first one would be like Unitarianism. So oh, the congregational, okay. the congregational polity of the New England colonies. You know, so most of our Reformed Puritan folks were not Presbyterian. You know, the majority right. of them were Congregationalist, and so they're the ones who established a lot of our early universities. And that weakness of their polity let them easily be overrun by the the new movement that happened in American religious life, which was Unitarianism. So Unitarianism takes over Harvard, Yale, uh, you know, takes over the Ivy Leagues, and it starts to really dampen the religious life and the orthodoxy of New England Puritanism. So it's like atrophying away their reformed identity. Uh, So that's one big thing. And uh, some scholars have said that if you were to divide the theological stances of the North and the South, you have Unitarian influence versus, uh, you know, the reformed influence of the Scottish folks in the South. But the, the without getting too deep in that, that's a very simplistic division. The other great specter, uh, not just early on, but later on, uh, which is what the mantle that men like J. Gresham Mansion take up is uh, the, the danger of ecumenism, right? So uh, this, instead of Unitarianism being the great issue, it's Roman Catholicism becomes this great evil thing that's trying to create a unified identity and we're trying to merge into one world church, you know, whatever they, they thought they were doing. But you see in the Princeton theologians, Warfield and on, a, a redefining of what it means to be truly reformed. You know, prior to this, everybody recognized Trinitarian baptisms. After Warfield, it's like, if you were baptized by a Roman Catholic church, maybe you need to be rebaptized. Uh, and so that really changed. I didn't the know tenor that. Interesting. Of, yeah. So that changes exactly how you define being reformed or being Catholic. And you can see that down to today that uh, in evangelical Christendom, uh, you can be any heretic you want, as long as you don't have bishops <laughs> or the Eucharist or liturgy or, you know, <laughs> or vestments, because that's Catholic. But you can believe in modalism. You can believe in women pastors. You can believe in whatever the Southern Baptist Convention wants to deem appropriate, but just don't be Catholic. <laughs> That's the great sin. So, yeah. Very insightful. I, yeah, I think. So, go ahead, Kirk. No, no, you go ahead, Chris. Oh, okay, because I was going to go a different direction. Um, Steve, I, I was just curious, um, with your really, really interesting background um, of, of coming, uh, it sounds like from a broken family, um, what impact has that had on your ministry? Yeah, well, I, I, I went in a quite short order from non-Christian to sacramental Christian or from non-Christian to liturgical Christian. And so the, the effect of my conversion happening 
in a tent revival, basically, to Toby Mac rock hip hop music uh, has held my feet down <laughs> to the fire as far as believing that there's some magical silver bullet in ministry. So even though I can see clearly uh, from the Didache to Nicaea throughout the century of the church, that church has always been done liturgically with a certain style of music, with a certain Western provenance, uh, that there is still value in what the evangelical church is doing to bring people like me into the fold. Uh, and so it's, I think, protected me from a lot of the uh, liturgical arrogance that I might have been guilty of <laughs> had I not had that personal history of, well, why doesn't everybody just use the specific prayer book that I grew up with, with the organ that I know how to sing to. Uh, but that's also really challenged uh, how I see church ministry, because if I know that people like me are converted by a big tent revival, and I can get conversions that way, why would I waste my time trying to teach a liturgy that doesn't usually yield those results? Why would I commit myself to a ministry where the churches on average are under 100 people? Isn't that less effective? And so uh, I've had to, through my years, evaluate whether or not the prayer book system is actually worth it. And uh, so the impact of uh, liturgical worship on my spiritual life and how I want to raise my family and my vision for my family has always been balanced against kind of the uh, effect of the ministry or, or yeah. the, you know, the, the pragmatism that we're always tempted to against the you know, spiritual purity of what does the Bible call us to do? And I think my conversion forces me to constantly wrestle with, uh, is it my personal taste and, <laughs> and personal uh, decision, or is it what God's kingdom is moving to, to create? So that along with, you know, so some of my personal history is parents were 16 and 18 when uh, I was conceived and uh, born in a irreligious household, which a hundred years ago would have been strange, but now it becomes more and more common. So I grew up in elementary school, in middle school, getting to high school, never have been into a Catholic service, never have gone to a Sunday service, never doing BBS or Sunday school. So when my sophomore English literature class starts talking about Flannery O'Connor and they're talking about the, the Jesus swinging on the vines in the back of her mind of wise blood for the actual English class, all of that is completely foreign to me. And uh, <laughs> so I come into teaching Christianity how the next generation is going to be raised as well, if that, if that makes sense, that I'm surrounded by people who are now growing up as commonplace, how I grew up as a rarity, if that makes, uh, makes sense. Yeah, that makes, makes complete sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like at, at one point, I mean, just it's, it's amazing how Christ came to you in that circumstance, you know, in God's providence and getting the word to you, uh, you who were once deaf to God's word, um, and your ears were opened. Speaking of the deaf receiving, uh, hearing, uh, let us turn to our gospel reading.
Our gospel lesson comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Now, what a wonderful passage that's certainly not COVID friendly, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Question, this... is this how you um, do your <laughs> prayer ministry? Uh, with co yes. co cone saliva, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I think this passage really speaks to the greatest issue facing modern American Christianity, and that is something that's been called brain-on-a-stick Christianity, right? That mm. all religion is ultimately in your mind, right? So it's, a, for me growing up uh, in, in kind of a Reformed tradition as a new Christian, it was all about packing in as many doctrinal data points as I could, or memorizing as many Bible verses, or debating my particular Reformed persuasion, uh, and less about the actual practice of it. And yet what we're continually reminded of throughout the scripture is that God cares about the earth and our bodies. And really central and fundamental to what it means to be a liturgical Christian. Uh, we take the script seriously. The, the black parts of the prayer book are the parts we fought about, but the postures of our prayers reflect something about what God thinks worship is, right? So uh, down to this particular verse where healing happens not in some strange part of our uh, cerebrum or, you know, this part of our frontal cortex, but healing happens not just by right belief, but by having a physical and tangible bodily human connection with the Christ. And that's often left out from, what do they call it now, moral therapeutic uh, deism or right. <laughs> however they describe it today that the what our people really need is just if they heard the right thing they said the right uh app acclamation uh did the right uh, bible study then suddenly their lives would be correct yet jesus in his ministry has this tangible bodily physical attachment to his ministry and it doesn't just happen with him although i would say that the fact that jesus uses his hands to heal is pointing them to pay attention to the fact of what the incarnation says about our future. You know, the great church fathers talked about that whatever Jesus didn't become, he can't heal, right? Whatever wasn't incarnated can't be redeemed. And uh, so the same thing is true here. He's showing his hands into this physical world, has a plan, a purpose to renew our physical body. And ultimately, as uh, uh, N.T. Wright would explain, renew the cosmos, right? There's an eternity and there's a plan that all of the effects of the Adamic curse are going to be <laughs> reversed. Uh, but more than that, more than that, there's also this, this idea of inside the church, this continues. Uh, 
is anybody sick, let him call upon the presbyteros, the elders, for them to anoint their heads with oil and lay hands on them. Uh, so Jesus gives this demonstration to his apostles of spitting on your hands and putting in people's ears and renewing this world one person at a time, and then gives that power, charge, and commission over his apostles that they would go out and be the healing hands of the world. Uh, and I'm going to let you add in on that, but one part that I, I always point out to my students here at the school is Jesus's miracles are not the greatest miracles, right? He heals one person. He gives one person back the, their, their undoes one person's sight or sight, uh, speech, deafness, muteness, but he promises his disciples greater miracles will you perform than I. And well, I don't think that we're going around walking on water and, and healing people by the thousands. Uh, our vision for Christendom through the apostles down to today has created hospitals, universities, a, a general Christian culture that has extended the expectancy of our life, overcome sickness, overcome poverty and uh, <laughs> ignorance in ways that would have been unfathomable that 2000 years ago, had he promised what the you know, systems would look like today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a great point. Um, Jesus does not treat the sick man as a brain on a stick, right? Someone to be like healed at a distance, which he is capable of doing. We see that elsewhere with like Jairus's daughter, for example. Like, but Christopher. Yes, not only Jairus's daughter, but um, immediately before this, uh, Jesus heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. what do we notice about that? That is a healing from a distance, right? Um, where this um, is is the laying on of hands. And um, I think that's significant, not only in Jesus showing us the importance of of the body and and. Uh, we, we are, we talk about embodied worship and we are embodied beings who worship with our bodies and, and how that matters, not only uh, during the liturgy, but, but at all times. But uh, what's interesting is in this passage, we see uh, this interesting uh, thing that like Jesus is, doesn't not have to actually touch the man as he, as he proves with, um, uh, in, in other cases that we just pointed out. But um, notice, they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Mm -hmm. That, that um, Jesus did not need to touch this man to heal him. And yet, like, there's a mercy of Jesus, like, coming to where they are. You know, he, he um, this is what they, in some sense, felt like this man needed to be healed. And, like, Jesus always condescends to us, right, to where, to where we are. Um, and I... I think those things are related. Um, they're, they're kind of begging for Jesus to lay hands and him healing, even though immediately prior, he's able to heal um, this woman's daughter who is not even present, right? Uh, and uh, just on a, on a general note, um, I'm sure uh, Father Steve would have something uh, far more intelligent to say about this. But, um, you know, we talk about signs um, that like the sign is not the thing itself. Um, like you, we don't like look at the sign and just like ogle the sign, but the sign represents something else. Right. Um, 
that the healings are not the kingdom, but the healings are signs of the kingdom. And if we just think back to the beginning of Mark, when we started in Mark chapter one, um, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And there's like this topic set in sort of for the entire gospel of Jesus announcing the kingdom. And we have these prophecies in the Old Testament text for this Sunday is from Isaiah 35, in which verses five and six say, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I mean, this is what Jesus is doing. Um, these are signs of the coming of the kingdom, which brings me to mind of what may have been a crisis of faith of John the Baptist, or John the Baptist just wanted to demonstrate to his disciples, like, ask for yourself and see what it is that you see with your own eyes. And so we see this both in Matthew 11 and Luke seven, and I'll just read Matthew 11 verses two through six. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But Jesus is saying like, um, these things testify for themselves that I am in fact the one. Like, look look and see with your eyes that the, these prophecies are coming by, that these are signs of the kingdom. Again, signs, not the kingdom itself. Um, the, the, the kingdom, the, the, you know, the, the fully consummated kingdom, of course, will have no sickness, no sickness, but um, the kingdom as it is now, like we can testify to the God who heals, the God who restores, the, the God who is remaking uh, and making all things new. And so uh, this kingdom, this, um, this kind of holistic work that we do in our, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, um, uh, the points to the God that we worship, um, this this work of, of um, not just reconciled relationships that, that Jesus didn't just come to um, save us from our sins, but like um, as we open hospitals and, and, and teach pe- teach literacy and all the things that the church does to um, is a vision of a God who heals and restores um, all of creation. And it's like a, a kind of like herald of, of kind of the, the, the coming kingdom. Yeah, and I love you. People listening can't see it, but you've just made some some hand gestures, some pointing. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is I I guess as Christians who have read the beginning of the Gospels over and over again, we forget that the kingdom at hand is an idiom, but it's meant to mean here with us presently. And I like that you you mentioned Saint John the Baptist having this kind of per- perhaps described as a crisis of faith because eventually he he comes around and says something rather peculiar and behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world this sacrificial language which only makes sense uh, in the kind of touching hand-based relationship that you see john and jesus having Uh, the baptism of course of christ being where john the baptist puts his hands on the the lord to offer an anointing to the anointed one which again it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Christ to go through the, the washing for repentance that John the Baptist is offering in the wilderness. So what is what is happening there is Christ being set apart or ordained uh, in this identity as this 
priest. He's 30 years old. He's going to get ceremonially washed. He's going to receive a blessing from John the Baptist, who is the heir and inheritor of the Levitical line through his father. That's the true temple sacrificial system is coming through John the Baptist into Jesus, who is going to represent a type of new kingdom at hand, but then tied to the idea of the Lamb of God, which go through our book of Leviticus, there are hands placed on each animal, whether it's the scapegoat or a lamb, as it's sacrificed to signify the presence of God's real forgiveness, uh, real offering of grace at that moment, which then comes into the world through Christ being the ultimate sacrifice that is revisited again and passed down to us as we open up in the book of Revelation chapter one, where we see that you're not just made uh, Christians to survive and escape, but you are made a kingdom of priests and kings to reign and rule with God as his kingdom invades this world. And you get a little sneak peek of that invasion as this person's ears are unstopped, as Christ's hands, much like they would have been on that scapegoat and uh, in Jerusalem, are now on this deaf man who is going to fulfill the prophecy that will be fulfilled in not just the apostles, but in every believer of Christ who shall be fully priest and king in the new kingdom. Amen. Well said. So a hymn, a great hymn of Charles Wesley leaps to mind um, as I read this text. Um, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, which has this great verse Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. And we see, or see here in this text um, someone who, uh, well, uh, for whom that, that, that verse played out, right? Uh, he was blind, and he beheld his... Uh, or he was, he, well, was he, he wasn't blind. Yeah. He was deaf. He was deaf. deaf. And, and, um, and, and his tongue, and he was dumb. His tongue was loosened. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we, we see that play out. Um, it's interesting. Your mind, Father Steve, uh, went in, in a similar direction. Uh, just the, and this is, this, this word is, is overused, but forgive me, the incarnational <clears throat> nature of this, uh, of this passage, right? That mind and body are together, that there's this very earthy healing. And it actually put me in mind of, um, Second Kings, uh, chapter five, um, where we have uh, we have the healing of Naaman, right? The great, um, the great foreign general, um, who who seeks uh, the healing from um, uh, who 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 comes to Israel to seek a healing, and um, oddly, uh, where he's told to uh, the, the way he's told to heal his less leprosy is to bathe in the Jordan River, and Naaman bristles at that because he says like. I thought, I thought you were like actually a prophet, like you would heal me and you're telling me to bathe in the scuzzy river. Like we got cleaner rivers where I was, where I came from. Like if it was actually just about like scrubbing myself clean, if like it was something I could wash off me. Um, I, I love it. The King James uh, chapter uh, verse 11 of that verse says, but Naaman was wroth <laughs> and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Now, why do I bring that up? Um, uh, in ways that will only make sense in the eschaton, in the revealing of all things, God seems to choose odd, unexpected means to convey his blessings. Um, we call these sometimes the means of grace or physical means. 
Um, and he could, like Naaman said, just call upon the Lord and, and, and apply the benefits of his blessing upon us. But instead, we get weird things like, like this man, like spit, <laughs> like Naaman, the muddy Jordan, Jordan River, or like for us, like our water and baptism, or bread and wine. Um, another passage where this is, where, uh, where, where a very godly, smart man stumbles upon this, of course, is Nicodemus, um, when he visits Jesus at night, right? Um, and how, how, how can this happen? Like, be born again? And Jesus is describing, you must be born again by water and the spirit. And he stumbles on that teaching, right? How, like, what, what, what does this mean? And um, why water, right? And yet we see that, that, that water with the name of Christ um, can renew us and can tie us in. That bread and wine, what an odd, odd thing, right? That bread and wine um, can confer to us uh, the benefits of his death and passion on the cross. Um, so I don't know if this is, this is, I don't know if it's a sense of humor on God's part or if it's just inscrutable and it'll only make sense, but we have this lovely thread through the Bible of unusual means that God uses to, um, to heal and to bless. And I just find that really interesting. You guys are nodding, so I must not have said anything heretical. So I have, I have, um, <laughs> I have a, a approval no, from two from two clerks. We're so we're taking notes. We'll bring you up on the tribunal later. <laughs> there will be an inquisition. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen, for your uh, for your commentary in the Gospels, um, Father Steve. I am excited to talk to you about your vocation and your unique calling. So I think we should move on to our culture segment and talk about a classical Christian education. Father Steve, you run a classical Christian school. So I want to ask you first, just a very basic question. What is a classical education? A classical education is an overly priced product that we are sold in the 21st century as a response to public schools. No, uh, I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, classical education, very succinctly, is taking what made Western civilization prosper and passing it on in all of its forms down to our children, uh, remembering the cultural inheritance from all of Christendom and even before that great thinkers have something to offer us and that there's a certain way and methodology in which those things were taught that's largely been lost by uh, the secular minded today. So very succinct, what? well put. All right, <laughs> oh, so that's a classical education. Now you obviously, you run a church school um, it's, is, is it on, it's on the same campus as your church, right? Yeah, we have a, we have a little bit of a compound. We have, okay. uh, <laughs> the, the, the church, the church is here and it's been here since uh, 1960s and, uh, we formed a school in the 1970s and I also live on here with my, my wife and our kids and I run the church as director, uh, throughout the week, as well as the headmaster of the school. And what makes our school unique amongst uh, classical schools is our Anglican identity. So we are part of the Anglican Schools Association, which is an organization within the ACNA that 
collect, con connects like-minded classical schools with the addition of the devotion to the prayer book. So our school begins every day with the morning prayer office. So that means from kindergarten up, these kids growing up saying the same confession that the parents say on Sunday. And we use the traditional uh, prayer book here in 28. They learn to sing their canticles. So we have first graders who know the Venite uh, better than <laughs> the most cradle Episcopalians. Wonderful. And that forms a religious foundation of how they start their days. But it also is their primary way of learning the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes way back in Christian history of how monastic communities were formed, how early Christians carried on the tradition of the scripture before there were Bible apps or even printed Bibles. How did they pass on and catechize the next generation and build off of the contributions of the church in each age? And classical education, teaching certain languages and teaching them in a what we describe today as a liberal arts persuasion allows us to tailor the education to match how God created the student in each stage of his life. Hmm. I'm going to take a brief tangent because you brought up something interesting, which is mandatory chapel. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis I once read um, that said that um, when in, in Church of England schools, when chapel was mandatory, everyone universally hated him, hated it. <laughs> and then the moment that the church went wobbly and stopped mandating chapel um, in schools, it was um, it was immediately missed. And and um, even non-Christians who had gone to church schools um, were, were uh, felt deeply the grooves that it had created in their souls. Um, and, and in an Anglican tradition, chapel means, right, morning prayer. I mean, that's what it means. We have a very reliable pattern of worship in that regard. Now, Christopher and I went to um, a, a Christian college, Grove City College, that had, it's Presbyterian, not Anglican, that had mandatory chapel. So it was kind of a more of a free-flowing um, format. Um, but likewise, I think chapel was largely universally hated. And now I look back and think upon it fondly. So if you ever get resistance, Father Steve, oh, how do you put kids through it? Even if they don't like it then, it is, it is creating reliable grooves in the soul that they'll be grateful for, I'm yeah. certain, later on. Do you ever and get think, feedback on mandatory chapel? You know, everybody loves chapel except for the preaching. Uh, they got this guy. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. That's my, I lead the chapel and I preach most, most days of the week, which is also a good practice, I think, as a young director to be given a sermon every single day sure. has been really an enriching experience in my spiritual development and uh, time in the scripture. But I'm reminded of other parts of our life. Uh, if you talk to somebody who's gotten to the habit of going to the gym, uh, there's always there's always resistance to getting your gym shorts on and going over to the treadmill, but there's never anybody who regrets having gone. And I think it's the same type of phenomenon. You know, there's initially some resistance to what makes us better, uh, but we'd never regret having kept to our diets, kept to our routines, kept to our structures, shown up on time. We don't regret those because we can recognize what they build inside of us. And the mm -hmm. kids here do the same thing. They become familiar with the creeds and the scripture and the lectionary and these hymns and canticles uh, in a way that you can't imbibe there's no alternate there's no slim fast quick <laughs> there's no quick remedy to get that same type of information into the soul of the child other than this repetition which is yeah. essentially the same idea behind classical education the way that we teach religion is the same way we teach arithmetic it's the same way we teach phonics it's the same way we teach science you know we pick up where dorothy sayers 
put out in uh, repairing the ruins, this idea, this message or vision for classical education that we are offering every subject taught in the way the scripture teaches the most important subject. And so the Hebrew people, how did they go about communicating, praying, and devoting their lives to God? Well, they had 150 songs, <laughs> and they said those day and night on a pattern, on a sequence, until they were part of their psyche. Uh, they committed the law and the Psalms to their identity. And they began in the morning, you know, the book of Deuteronomy says, when you rise up, right? So uh, this is part of our biblical identity. But a Christian who then takes every other part of education will try to take God's wisdom and apply it uh, to the way God has instructed our minds and bodies. So if it makes sense to do repetition for children in memorizing the scripture, well, then it makes sense to learn the times tables that way and to learn your phonemes and graphemes that way and your Latin conjugations and tenses that way. And I think that's, that's the hard work of classical education that forms gritty, uh, persevering young people who are able to then move into uh, capable lives and careers. Yeah. So uh, if, if you were to draw a pie chart or use percentages, what, um, what, what percentage of your students probably come from like Christian church-going families and what don't? So I would say 70 to 80% of our, depending on the year, are from church families. Now, that means something very different <laughs> in, uh, in the Bay Area in California. So uh, that might mean they go to church once a year or twice a year, uh, but the, the demographic identity of a Christian here is largely optional. <laughs> so our school, even if somebody belongs to a church and they go every Sunday, their catech catechesis has to start from zero. They don't know the Apostles' Creed. They don't have a you know, a concept of how the story of salvation works. And if they do, it's this very truncated view of, I've said the sinner's prayer, now I wait until I get married and get baptized, right? So there's a strange, uh, you know, strange foreign Christian identity that we're offering to the students as well. Now, the other part of it is majority of our students don't come from our church. Uh, my kids and a few others are the only Anglican representatives in the school. And so not only are we introducing uh, you know, a catechesis, uh, a foundation for our Anglican students, but we're introducing a spirituality that would otherwise never exist in the lives of these kids uh, because of the church backgrounds they in. They get, more, they get more church time in one chapel one day, <laughs> in one day than they would do in a number of Sundays at their Sunday schools or youth programs. And yet we do it every single morning they get more scripture in one of our daily offices than they would sure. get in a month of services. So yeah. it's really, really formative, really important for the spiritual identity and uh, connects them to something bigger than themselves and allows us to really embrace and share the traditions of traditional Christendom with them. So for example, we're coming up on October, right? And so as a Christian school, we do All Saints Day Parade. And so nice. Monday, no, Monday, November 1st, every mother, father, child, pet shows up to campus dressed up for All Saints Day. And we have people who are Martin of Tours and people who are St. Boniface. We got people who are the animals on the ark. And we just really connect our tradition with the liturgical calendar. And we're able to show the students 
who are fighting in a world that doesn't have any connection to meaning or timelessness, hey, you're, you're connected to something that goes back to Christ himself and even before then. And so it's, a, I think, a powerful connection because once they leave our schools, that identity is what they need to fight the secularism that's going to be offered to them mm. and the undergraduate program. There, there's going to be a pull for them to conform to whatever image or culture they get put into. So to have an overarching Christian identity that forms their year, their time, their identity, their marriage, I think is very important to start early. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a significant majority of your students, you said 80% are probably come from churched or Christian families and on some level, yeah. but most of those are not from your parish. Um, then these are, these are other people who must be seeing something attractive. Um, I, maybe perhaps you can explain this. Maybe they're, they're fleeing the California public school system, <laughs> um, but you must be offering something that's attractive to these non-Anglican families. Um, when they describe that to you, how do they put that in their words? Yeah, well, it's very interesting. There's a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's as simple as you make the boys use the boys' bathroom, uh, which is a strange <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> But in California, it's a real issue. Yeah, yeah. real issue. Uh, whereas, you know, gender studies have, have and transgenderism and introducing sex ed in kindergarten are real issues here in the Silicon Valley. And so people want a safe place where their kids aren't going to be sexualized in kindergarten. Mm. Uh, so that kind of safety is, is one thing. And that's from Christian and non-Christian families. Both of them recognize that there's something really warped about the public school uh, in that regard. The second part is that if you go to our kindergarten, we take a test at the end of the year and Canterbury students rank in the top 1% of test takers in, in the nation because the classical education we provide them uh, gives them a three or four grade head start wow. over what they're doing in the government schools. Now, some of that is uh, self-selected through a private school. So we have families who are already invested in their kids' education, self-selecting their people of you know, some means and substance uh, to provide an environment for their kids to learn. But this area, particularly the city I'm in, Los Altos, is one of the most affluent in the country. We have Facebook, we got Google here in our neighborhood. And the public schools have four or five times dollars per student. And yet they're sure. not able to perform because their pedagogy, the way that they teach, is inferior to the way the church has always taught students. They're more concerned with uh, socialization and uh, political outcomes than they are with your child actually knowing how to read, how to do arithmetic, how to <laughs> in interact with their environment with those real numbers. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. they, they come for safety, they come for high academics and the Christian families, they come here because they recognize that we're gonna teach them the Bible. They're gonna leave here having chunks and chunks and chunks memorized, committed to memory and apply to their life and that that's gonna be taught there. Finally, I think the other reason is we're, we're a character building school. And so there's a, a strong emphasis on deference to adults. Uh, we begin every single morning with a flag salute before we go into morning prayer. You know, kids, uh, you know, they, they have silent lunches where they listen to classical music. They stand up when a, <laughs> they stand up when a, when a teacher walks into the room or any adult walks to the room, every student rises, turns to that person, good morning, right? So there's a, an emphasis on virtue and virtue education is absent almost entirely from Christian schools and public schools. And so 
parents look at this and they say, why would I want something less than the best education that's ever been given to teach them to be good citizens with good virtue and uh, also know the Bible? It's the best of all the worlds together. It's a lot more work and it's a little more expensive, but I think yeah. every Christian family should strive to offer that to their kid. Here, here. That sounds great. So um, in the 18th century, 19th century, in the 19th century, um, Roman Catholic immigrants and Lutheran immigrants came here and they built their own parishes and they built their own schools. Um, and they established um, effective networks um, that, that did um, a lot of what you're describing, which is create a shelter for the faithful from kind of the countervailing currents in the culture. Um, why is it that we as Anglicans have, have, have failed to do so? And how can we, well, this is my two-part question, so maybe answer that first, and then I'll answer the what can we do moving forward. Yeah, well, I think we need to recognize where the schools are now today. Uh, so there are half a dozen other Catholic parochial schools in my neighborhood who charge twice as much as I do, yet I'm the only school that teaches Latin. <laughs> what, because this what what's happened in American parochial education is over the years, Christian schools have ceded territory. The success of mm -hmm. Catholic schools in creating Christian enclaves or educational right. enclaves have ceded ground and lowered their standards, lowered their, their expectations of what classical education is. And today, there's not much difference between the yeah. public school, the Catholic parochial school, the Seventh-day Adventist school uh, here in our neighborhood, test scores or outcomes. But for for what you're asking, as far as what should uh, what should we look at as Anglicans? Uh, yeah, because it sounds like you're describing an opening for us, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I would go back to you know 60, 70 years ago. There was a Robert Ingram who was in Texas. He was an Episcopal priest and missioner. He started a St. Thomas Church uh, there in Houston, and he started with it a school, and he had the vision of. You build a school, you build a church, and the community will grow up around that. And you know he's one of these early uh, Episcopal classical schools. And our founders here in the 70s looked to him as uh, founders there. There's also our friend at the Fairfax Christian School. These were responding to some serious changes that had happened in the public schools. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the techniques and methods that you know we describe as classical today, especially in early education, you know, teaching phonics, teaching arithmetic, were fairly common and common sense in public schools prior to the 19th century. But then you get Horace Mann and these uh, uh, John Dewey John and these Dewey. innovations. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> and what used to be you know, sufficient in the public schools is challenging. It, it changes into something else. So perhaps in the 18, 1800s, you could get a liberal, liberal arts education in a government school uh, because everybody who taught there was raised with a, you know, common sense uh, liberal arts education themselves. But following this kind of revolution in progressive education, there is a need to come out from the influence of Deweyism and start something new. And so you start to see that coinciding in the 1950s with the new uh, federal regulations over schools and states taking over departments of education. So local control is taken away from school districts and it's uh, made statewide or federal wide. And that's continued to grow even into our day. You know, we have George W. Bush from the No Child Left Behind programs where federal uh, policy dictates what's taught in schools. And while many conservatives supported when a Republican did it, they're not too happy when <laughs> you have a, a progressive 
mandating federal ideas of gender today. So that combined uh, with the rise of the Christian school movement in reaction to uh, desegregation and uh, some of those type of things really made a, an important uh, an important milestone for Anglicans to step in. So Anglican Christian schools, Episcopal Christian schools have an opportunity in the last 50 years to offer an alternative to public schools because the public schools have largely failed. And so this is where we are today uh, because the scores and literacy have not improved despite the millions and millions of dollars going into the program. And uh, I think we offer classical education as a way to grow the parish and to influence the kingdom, but also to build a, a educated uh, populace that can actually take on tomorrow's issues. Um, it's, it's a great travesty that the folks who entered Princeton University or Yale University at the start of our country would enter the undergraduate program by passing a Latin or Greek right. entrance exam. And then today, <laughs> the folks who graduate out of our Christian graduate schools, Anglican or Methodist, probably could not pass the same entrance exam for the undergraduate program just 150 years ago. And so there is a loss of learning. And uh, with the rise of technology, it's easier and easier to not emphasize uh, the fundamentals and to depend on uh, the, the movement of our culture to be the, the, the path of least resistance in education. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, yeah. Yeah. I have monopolized. Yeah. So um, you were about to say something. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I was. <laughs> uh, you know, Father Steve has been so high minded in his uh, commentary. Um, so I just want to bring us down a few notches uh, <laughs> before Kirk, before you ask your kind of final question, I'm sure you're formulating that. Uh, we mentioned chapel um, and uh, daily chapel. And Kirk, we cannot talk about this without acknowledging that your diploma from college <laughs> was withheld because you did not attend the chapels that were required of you. So I just oh. wanted to bring that up as we bring this down that, that Kirk, um, you know, thinks back fondly on chapels that he did not attend and had to write a paper for every single chapel that he missed. So uh, I just wanted to insert there that uh, bring us down to earth and then go back. We, we can ascend back up to these high-minded um, uh, ideals not, of, of uh, pedagogy. I did not get my physical actual diploma until months later into the autumn of the next year because I had X number of papers I had to write. Um, it's funny because like when, when you walk across the stage, they shake your hand and they hand you a thing. You opened up that thing and it was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> right. You did not attend enough chapels. Uh, well, we could talk about this if you want your actual diploma. And there was this whole black market system too of like bartering for like chapel cards, like, like you know, five. I'll go to chapel for. I already did turned in all and, my and chapel cards. I'll turn yeah. in yours, and yeah. So you were too honorable to, to to use that. I understand. Yeah. Well, it's it's too bad you didn't go to an, an Episcopal undergrad because you know, uh, Kenyon College was founded by Anglicans, you know, hundred or so years ago. Uh, Flander Chase, uh, who was the headmaster and rector there at that college, and their school song mentions that he would beat the <laughs> beat the undergrads for not attending chapel. He'd get the switch out and show them that they need to be in chapel. So, progressive times uh, have have ruined the 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 value of chapel in so many ways. But 
<laughs> Indeed. But yeah, there, there, there is something to be said of, of um, the uh, implicit uh, acknowledgement that uh, students are, are there to, to learn and, and uh, you know, clearly our, our campuses are in a different place now where like um, students feel like they want to lecture and educate the professors like, oh, you're not, you're un- insensitive in this way and um, are ununderstanding and like, uh, they don't understand, like students are so ignorant that they don't understand their ignorance and, and realize like the, the, the expertise that professors bring. And, and I think even the, the way you've described um, your classical school, uh, simply the motions that you go through on a daily basis is one of, of where students are receiving. Um, they receive mm-hmm. the scriptures, um, they re- and they respond um, in, in these motions that, um, that we've inherited, right? Um, and like that is um, pedagogy there, is that it's not like this um, subjective thing, but like there's, there's like this objective telos that we're all aiming towards, that, that, that we um, use these common practices to work our way towards. And, and that in itself is, is incre- an incredibly different approach than uh, say a public school. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, being a government school doesn't make, think, make them adopt a certain pedagogy. The, the problem is just the, the modern way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even down to how we describe education, we have uh, teachers are not instructors, they're you know, co-learners, things like that. Even mm-hmm. something as harmless as the phrase kindergarten, which we use in our school, is supposed to convey this idea that students are basically good and we're just coaxing out the fruit of their education as they explore who they are. It's like but, Rousseauian, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Right, um, but you know, what Milton had as John Milton's vision of education, he says that the, the chief end of learning is to repair the ruin of our first mm. parents, right? Ooh. That there's this, there's this part of us that's broken by our sin and that education giving us uh, a knowledge of our sin, what St. Paul says, the law as a tutor to Christ is part of our intellectual and educational identity. And so in one sense, all education must be Christian and work towards that repairing of the ruin or else it gets into this idea that man's basically good and we're just trying to you know, pull out something from him rather than give him something that's been broken that Christ is now offering to repair with. So here's a disclaimer. Um, I teach in public <laughs> schools and only ever have taught in public schools. Uh, so I, I, I'm not gonna slander anyone specifically, but like the way you describe, um, Christopher, you touched upon it. Father Steve, you touched upon it as well. The way you describe uh, the way, for example, literature is taught now. Um, we have now, instead of English class, we have both English and reading. And English is more like the, the grammar and the punctuation and the mechanics. And it's like been ripped apart as if, mm-hmm. as if the two weren't seamless from literature. And literature isn't really taught um, in, in elementary or middle schools. It's, it's some of it's taught in high schools, but rather what's taught is reading. You know about this? There are read, kids have reading classes. Mm-hmm. And so it's like ripping apart and dissecting um, corpses. Uh, so like they're taught genre and how to recognize genre um, as if that's the interesting thing that would create love of reading or knowledge or learning. And it's just I'm, our reading teachers. Oh, forgive me if it, by any odd happenstance, any of my coworkers would ever hear this, but like, <laughs> display almost zero 
interest in classical literature. Like I couldn't have a conversation about with about George Eliot um, or Jane Austen with with any of my colleagues. Um, mm. They can they can teach genre and how to analyze the text and pull out main idea and supporting details. But who wants whoever picked up a book like so that they could demonstrate uh, a proficiency in identifying main idea or supporting details. Like, so I love that you're doing classical learning where the point of a great text is that it elevates the soul. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we read George Eliot or Jane Austen or, or any of the authors that you teach your kids is be, because um, they're, they're subtle thinkers that touch upon lovely truths of the human condition in ways that like reading <laughs> and main idea and context and supporting detail and genre would never elevate the soul that way. So that that's more of a rant and a comment than a question, but no, it, but it's good. And it's good. It's important. What's, what's interesting is, you know, classical education is usually associated with teaching Latin, which is right. important. You, know, you, you teach uh, English phonetics and then part two of English grammar is introducing Latin at second grade. And you don't really understand English unless you've studied Latin. Uh, and our chapels begin every, you know, every morning with the recitation of the Greek alphabet, right? So our, our kids are getting that. And so some people could be put off by the fact that like, oh, they're spending so much time on this technical, you know, old, ancient, dead right. languages. Uh, but another part of classical education is like after lunch, the kids are gathered around the teacher. The teacher opens up Wind in the Willows by Kenneth oh. Graham. And the kids sit there and they just listen as their vocabulary is expanded they're taught again virtue context and how much more powerful is that than what i had in elementary school which was in a public school where mm -hmm. it's like all right go read anamorphs for 20 minutes <laughs> right <laughs> you're right and so uh it's it's recapturing that kind of classical heritage it's uh, recapturing the imagination, the, the idea of purpose, journey, telos, as you guys have said, that there's an arc to human history where, where Christ has a purpose and he is revealed in all of these pieces of Western culture, touchstones of what the pinnacle of human identity is, if you would just pause and let it catch up to your 21st century high-speed <laughs> momentum mind. So mm, sure. anyway. Yeah, so I we're gonna wrap here in just a moment. Uh, I have one more question. Um, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Um, since we're discussing literature, um, I, I wonder if you would have a um, a book recommendation. How about two book recommendations? Just to put you on the spot, uh, one nonfiction, um, but then one literature recommendation for our listeners. Um, keep in mind, uh, almost exclusively adults. So, uh, do you have something off the top of your head you could say? Here, here's a piece of fiction that everyone should read. And then, um, and then perhaps a, a nonfiction book, that'll be perhaps more difficult. I don't know if you want to go uh, yeah. well, Church Fathers or something more contemporary. Yeah, well, nonfiction book that everybody should read that most people skip over is C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it's, in my opinion, Pilgrim's Progress is, is not a terribly good classic. Uh, John Bunyan's version is much more inferior to Lewis's retelling. Uh, John Bunyan's a loser who never gets a job and just goes off to heaven abandoning his family. But Pilgrim's Regress should be uh, assigned reading, especially since Lewis is a prophet anticipating exactly the dilemma we're in to today with uh, you know, rationalism and all these different genres. But adults read Pilgrim's Regress. 
uh, Bishop Sutton uh, in the RAC, they just did a conference on C.S. Lewis. And so there's some, actually some lectures on Pilgrim's Regress from, uh, from some of his priests there. If uh, interested, you can go to the Diocese of Mid-America website for that. Uh, but for nonfiction, in education, <laughs> pick one, you said, pick one. Uh, th this is, if you want to know more about classical education, go back to Dorothy Sayers, you know, Repair the Ruins. She reignited the vision for classical education, and she describes uh, the trivium, which is kind of breaking up education into three basic stages. And it doesn't require a brick and mortar school like Canterbury. It doesn't require tons of investment and money, but it gives you a vision for raising the expectations of what your child is able to accomplish. And it kind of flips the, the idea of education on its head. Too many of us begin education with, how can I give my child the best education that they can go to the best college so I can get the best degree? Instead, they should be thinking, how do I give them and cultivate in them disciplines and virtues that they will be the best version of who God made them to be in their life. And those are two different things. And I think so much of our unhappiness in our age is because inside of our young people is this person God created them to be, called them to be, gave them a vocation to be, but they've had these external constraints to their parents or through their culture saying, but you're supposed to be a lawyer. You're supposed to be making this money. You're supposed to be hiding behind this office for 40 hours to pay for a house you don't live in, to go on vacation that you didn't enjoy <laughs> with a family you don't much care for. But anyway, so uh, Sayers and Lewis, I, I think essential reading uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you could be satisfied that's with that. Those, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, you could have done far worse than those two. I, I love I love those as uh, recommended yes. readings. All right. So final question, because we all we all got a wrap here. Um, I'm just enjoying this so much, Father Steve. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time and your thoughts. Um, how how can parishes think about or discern a call to start a school? Um, because what you're doing here is genuinely inspiring. And you 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 seem to be saying that this is something that there's a hunger for. And it can be done. Uh, yes. So how can people pray and think through that? Yeah. So first of all, um, it's helpful for me to tell you that our school began as a kindergarten program with one mom and her three kids. And they used the parish hall and they, the mom would pick up two or three neighborhood kids. The first two years, they had six kids in the kindergarten and Quickly, the word spread, and they added a first grade. And over the next 10 years, second grade, third grade, so on. And it just organically was born out of the parish. Uh, that's, that's how our school came to be. And it wasn't a huge loan or a huge process. It was just giving, responding to the needs of the congregation at that time. So it's okay um, to start small. <laughs> yes, it's, it's ideal. But then there's also been a huge benefit for our parish. You know, over the last you know, 60, 60 years or so, uh, the school has been able to financially support a lot of what the church has been able to accomplish. Because once you have an, a school up and running, you're able to you know, pay, offset the cost of paying the priest. We're able to bring in musicians. Our teachers serve in our church and our school. And so even though it's a lot of upfront investment and work, it's actually created and cemented our identity uh, in the community that will be here for a long, long time because of the financial support of the school. And so uh, if you're in a church planting environment and you're thinking of how do I fund this, education is an excellent way to do it. Uh, and that there are other ways to do education in a classical way besides the brick and mortar 
school for five days a week. Classical Conversations has these co-op programs where you go two days a week uh, and uh, do a homeschool program at home. There's lots of alternatives ways. And then ultimately it's possible that your kids could be uh, visiting the public school in the morning and you're trying to introduce classical education to supplement that. How do you do that? And uh, I think every father needs to consider what does he want his child to remember about their childhood. And what I want my kids to remember is that as we sat down for dinner, dad read today's chapter of Proverbs. If it's chapter 27, because it's June 27th, we read that chapter. And then after dinner is finished, he broke out his copy of, you know, Charlotte's Web, and he read a chapter before we all went to bed. That's, you know, the heart of classical education. Um, and, and from the very beginning, parents were investing in their kids. And if we just cut off one episode of something on Netflix, we can inspire and introduce classical education, uh, even to our youngest or, or uh, smallest efforts. Yeah. I love that. That's great advice. Christopher, any final thoughts or questions before we end in prayer? Let's pray. The Lord be with you. And with, and with your spirit. spirit. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, grant your people grace to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 O God and Father of all whom that whole heavens adore, let the whole earth also worship you, all nations obey you, all tongues confess and bless you, and men, women, and children everywhere love you and serve you in peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us today, Steve. Kirk, I was going to leave some space for you to thank him as well. Sorry. Thank you, Go Father ahead. Steve. Next week, Christopher. Next week.